Hey Amen. I can't think of a better way to worship the Lord and to sing to Him and to worship Him and to celebrate what He's done. And even the way this service began as we were just getting started, and I think it was James, but I might have the wrong... It was James. I saw a thumbs up upstairs. As just as we were getting started, I heard a small child saying, Hey, Daddy! I can't think of a better way to worship than to have children joining with their families for worship. But we are also blessed to have a great children's ministry, and you see some workers over here to my left and your right. If you have kids that would like to go be a part of the children's church service that will be in the other building, uh, we welcome you to send your kids there. They are welcome to stay in here as well. Uh, some churches are a little more particular about that, but I love the idea of kids being in service with us as well. So, happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen we are so honored to have you with us this morning for this beautiful Sunday morning. As probably everyone knows here already, this is absolutely the biggest day on the Christian calendar. Christmas is arguably the second biggest day, but the truth is that Jesus never instructed his people to remember his birth. He did, however, call us to remember his death, which set up the greatest event in human history as Jesus would rise three days later from the grave. And it is this one act of resurrection that changes everything for us. In its original context, the world went from utter darkness to brilliant light, just as I shared about in the sunrise service this morning. They went from about 400 years of apparent silence from God and his prophets to the God of the universe coming and dwelling among men and overcoming death right before their very eyes. Can you imagine how much the resurrection would have changed things for them. In addition to the apparent absence of God throughout this time period, the 400 years or so, Jesus often shares stories that illustrate the depths of sin that existed in that day. There are stories of sexual immorality and pride and arrogance and even violence, if you remember back to the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it would seem that such lifestyles dominated their culture. Add to this the fact that the Jewish people found themselves under Roman oppression. And I imagine that the world seemed very dark to them. Can you imagine how the life of Jesus, followed by the resurrection of Jesus, would have changed things for them? Actually, as the world encountered Jesus, it couldn't help but to be changed. In fact, the scriptures, as well as history books, reveal many examples of those who would encounter Jesus and be transformed by him. My guess is that some of you are actually a part of that story. For many, it was through the powerful teaching, or perhaps it was his miraculous healing, or maybe even simply a compassionate touch. How would such an encounter impact you? I imagine that those who had been delivered from leprosy, or maybe blindness, or those who previously were unable to walk, yet suddenly they were able to walk, 
they probably had a great deal of appreciation and respect for who Jesus was. I imagine those who experienced spiritual deliverance, they had had demons cast out. I imagine they had a sense of appreciation, knowing that what had been done for them was made possible only through Jesus Christ. And I imagine those who had been previously identified by their sin, people like tax collectors or adulterers or many others, I imagine those who found hope and a new lease on life in Jesus would be remarkably loyal to him. I guess to the recipients of such grace, it would seem as if their world had gone from utter darkness into brilliant light. They would have had a great appreciation for the words of Isaiah as recorded in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where he said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Before I get too deep into the actual text this morning, I ask you a question. What has changed about our culture? I don't mean just in the first century. The reality is that Jesus' appearing did change humanity. Nations would rise up, hope would be found, revival would take place, and it would last for centuries. But the time would come for humanity where we would forget what God had done for us. We would begin to live as if Jesus had not really come at all or as if it were not truly relevant to today's age. So I ask you today, is the world any different today? I would imagine that most first world Christians understood the evil that was prevailing in their world, yet I would add that even today, most of us recognize evil that prevails in our world. We recognize that we're on the verge of recession. There is civil unrest seemingly everywhere we turn. But we aren't called to run. We are called to rescue. We must lead in the battle, not leave the battle. We are the body of Christ, and we have the power of God available to us. And whether you recognize it or not, you are the greatest hope that this world has because you have access to Jesus himself. Guess what? They do too. They just don't know it yet. But they're not going to know it unless you are the one who shows them. Perhaps God is merely shaking the physical in order to get us to respond in the spiritual. Specific to the United States, our nation is being shaken to its core. About every news cycle has been driven over the last two, three years. It's been driven by disease or political unrest or economic turmoil or violence or some type of perversion. Just two weeks ago, I highlighted some of the perversion that has dominated our culture and the potential for its long-term consequences. Can you imagine generations down the road, the things that we look at as perverse, if it is not addressed By God's people today, generations down the road, it will be normal and it will be a problem because it will not line up with God's word. And I wonder 
Sometimes why God has not done something about the darkness in our world. Why would he allow such evil to exist? On a side note, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit trail, but I wonder if maybe God isn't waiting for God's people to do something about it. You're expecting God to step up and stop the injustices that are occurring, to call out sin, to address the evil. Maybe God is desiring to, but he desires his people to be a part of it. How many of us are living testimonies to the saving and the transforming work of Christ? If God has not transformed your life, something is wrong. Well, the rest of the world should look at you and say, that's what it is to be a child of God. Maybe God desires us to be a part of transforming our world. How many of us have made prayer a priority? specifically related to the darkness that surrounds us. I challenge you with the idea that God longs to do something great to take us from darkness into light. But perhaps he wants us to be more than observers in this journey. I ask you to pray that God would send revival upon this land. And not just some token prayer where we pray because the pastor told us to. I mean all of us seeking the Lord with all of our hearts and embracing the hope that is found in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, which says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, that's the change, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for us? Let's humble ourselves again before the Lord. Seek his face. Turn from our sin. And then God promises forgiveness and healing. We're talking about darkness changing to light. America crossed a dangerous Line years ago, instead of repenting and turning back to God, we have walked further into the deep waters of ungodliness. The brutality of our, in our streets is almost unparalleled as despair overcomes our land. But believe it or not, I am very hopeful. All that sounds really negative so far, doesn't it? Terrible things happening. How can we be hopeful amid such darkness and depravity? Because God often revives his people at very dark moments in history. Before an awakening broke out in Wales in 1904, I talked about this a few months ago, but one observer noted, I want to quote what he said, it is ever the darkest hour before the dawn, the decay of religious faith, the deadness of the churches, the atheism of the well-to-do, the brutality of the masses, all of these, when at their worst, herald the approach of revival. And that is exactly what took place. A great revival that would change that nation for a century to come. Wouldn't you love to see that happen today? If you don't believe that that's possible, I want you to listen to what the scriptures say today. You heard Colby read it to us earlier from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. And I know it's not the typical resurrection passage that we hear at Easter, but it summarizes what we see described in all four of the gospels, but it also makes things incredibly personal for us. 
This isn't just about a historical event that took place 2,000 years ago. This is also a part of our story, as it should have changed everything for us. Listen to the passage. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, there are four things that I want you to see from this passage today. The first is this. Regardless of who you are, there was a time that you were, or it's possible that you still are, that you were dead in your sins. Maybe this seems a bit elementary to you. You've probably heard that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wage of sin is death. And the Apostle Paul tells the Roman church that there is none righteous, no, not one. And even though we try to be good, Ecclesiastes 7.20 tells us that indeed there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. What that tells me is all of us actually are on level ground. We've all been in the same position. We once were dead in our sin. And again, some of us may still be, but there's a very practical side to this. We're talking about darkness and light. What it comes down to is that while we were dead in our sins, there is great darkness that exists within us. Have you ever heard of an individual doing something so horrendous where the first thought that went through your mind was how dark must that individual be? I mean, for someone to take advantage of a little child or for someone to kill individuals without even knowing anything about them, for someone to be so dark, how evil must they be? The truth is darkness comes in many shades. Sometimes it shows up in our attitudes, in our actions, in the words of our mouths. I want you to think about it. If everybody walked in the light we wouldn't have all the political unrest that takes place around us. We wouldn't have people rioting in the streets. There wouldn't be sexual immorality every time we turned on our television. We wouldn't even have to worry about economic turmoil. I'm not going to get into that aspect of it today, but recognize that all the things that have plagued our world, if we truly surrendered everything to Jesus Christ they would no longer be an issue for humanity, but they are, which tells us that there must be a great deal of darkness. John chapter 3, most of us are familiar with verse 16, but what it says slightly after that in verse 19, it says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Instead of embracing the light, we have this perpetual darkness that continues to keep us 
from experiencing what God intends for us. Without intervention from Christ, we will never be able to break free from that darkness. But the good news is that while we were dead, Jesus willingly died. In fact, it could be argued that this was the sole purpose for Jesus and his coming to earth in the first place, to die in our place. Verse 13 and 14 of our passage today say that he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The he that's referenced there is clearly Jesus. Jesus forgave us all of our sins. He canceled the charge of legal indebtedness. In other words, the wage of sin, that's what you owe. He canceled the charge. He took it away, nailing our sins to his cross. Do you remember earlier when I referenced the fact that the wage of sin is death? That statement is still true. The only difference is that Jesus paid your wage, canceling the charge of your legal indebtedness. And this idea of him nailing it to the cross is also very important to us. Have you ever done something that you would be ashamed for others to know about? I don't want you to raise your hand because the only ones not raising their hands are the ones that are lying. Because I think all of us have been in those shoes at some point or another. Maybe it's happened a lot. Maybe you've wondered how God could ever forgive you for what you have done. Well, I have good news for you. When Jesus died on that cross, it was as if he were literally taking your sin upon himself, nailing your sin to the cross so that it would never be held against you again. Isn't that a beautiful image? You've carried that weight of shame and just fearing the day that others would find out the things that you have done. We're told that in the final days that everything will be made known. Can you imagine the secrets that you have held on to and the shame that goes with that thinking, I would be so embarrassed if other people knew the things that I had done and you know that there is coming a day where everything will be made known. Wouldn't it be great to know that all of those things have been washed in the blood of Jesus And those sins no longer have to cause you fear. What a beautiful image. The weight of guilt and shame removed never to be held against you again. It doesn't mean that the world won't use your failures against you. And it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences for your past choices in life. But it does mean that when you stand before the Lord, your sins have already been paid for by Jesus Christ. So you were dead and then he died. But the story gets even better because the next part of this today that I want you to see is that he is alive. I know that's not the way it normally works. In fact, normally once someone's dead, they're dead. There are historical examples of exceptions to that, but there is doubt as to whether such events were real. Let me give you an example. 
On October 2nd, 1571, recently deceased young farmer Matthew Wall was lying in a coffin on the way to his own funeral. Even though the day was cool and damp, the whole village of Brawhing in Hertz, I'm messing up the name, Hertfordshire, was out for the event, including Wall's distressed fiance. As the procession made their way to the church, one of the pallbearers slipped on the wet leaves, dropping the coffin on the ground, and obviously the commotion was surprising. Can you imagine them dropping the body? But then when the men lifted the coffin again, they were even more shocked by what they heard, the sound of knocking. Matthew Wall supposedly had come back to life and was banging on the walls of his own coffin. When the men recognized what was going on, they opened up and he and his wife would actually become married for more than two decades. Is this a myth or is this simply a misdiagnosis of death, maybe a little bit premature? Back then you were dead for less than 24 hours before you were buried. Maybe it passed out and they just didn't realize what was going on. Of course, we also have some biblical examples of people who were restored to life. Both Elisha and Elijah raised young men back to life. So did the Apostle Paul. And of course, the most notorious example of an individual being raised from the dead was probably Lazarus, who had been dead for four days when Jesus raised him from the dead. In fact, we're told that his body had already begun to decay. There's one more example that I'll give you before we get to Jesus and his resurrection. Did you know that there was a mass resurrection that took place on the day of Jesus' crucifixion? We don't talk about it very often because we're so focused on what was happening to Christ. But actually, the scriptures reveal that there was a mass resurrection. Matthew 27, verse 51 to 54, listen to it. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Can you imagine the chaos that such an event would have caused? And it's such a, a contrast. At the moment of Jesus' death, there would have been a feeling of deep despair among his followers, incredible darkness. But then you have these recently died friends and family that have come back to life. Do you rejoice over their return or do you mourn over what's taken place with Jesus? But on this occasion, at the resurrection of Jesus, there is no doubt as to whether or not Jesus has been dead. It's been a very public execution. Everybody saw what took place. The brutality that took place would have been overwhelming. There's no way that an individual could have survived. Yet just as Jesus had prophesied on multiple occasions, three days after his death, Jesus was again raised back to life. And in that moment, Jesus defeated death. 
Did you know that death was not always a part of humanity's story? We have no idea how long Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden prior to the advent of sin. But we do know that God had warned them that if they sinned, then they would surely die. And death has been a part of humanity's story ever since. But what Jesus does in the resurrection is he paves the way for humanity so that death does not have to be the end of our story anymore. I heard it illustrated like this. Imagine that death is represented by a huge, thick curtain with nothing more than a brick wall on the other side. All must pass through that curtain, but until we get to the other side, we have no idea what to expect. Now imagine that Jesus has broken through that brick wall so that when you get to the other side of the curtain, you discover that there is another story yet to be told that awaits you. The fact that Jesus broke through the wall changes everything for us. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, but that there is a judgment that follows thereafter. But remember that all of your sins were nailed to the cross of Jesus. So what is there left to judge? Your sins have been forgiven. Your story is not over at the judgment of Christ. Well, I told you there were four things that I wanted you to see from this passage. The first was that we were dead. And then second, he died. The third is he is alive. And the final point is this, we can live. Just as he moved from death to life, we too can move from death to life. But there is a catch to this one. Everything that I've shared already is fully dependent on the natural condition of man and the work of Jesus Christ. But our invitation to live is partially dependent on us. And I know that this is an uncomfortable idea because we talk about grace. Know that grace is still a part of this. But it's a partnership. I think Paul sums it up best in Colossians 1, verse 22 through 23. He says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's all his work. He continues, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Who does the saving? God still does the saving. By grace? Yes, it is still by grace. Regardless of anything that you do, no. We must continue in our faith and not move from the firm foundation that the gospel provides if we are to enjoy the free gift of forgiveness accomplished through Jesus Christ. Please understand that salvation and forgiveness is granted solely through the grace of Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not 
from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And of course, the most familiar verse in all of Scripture is John 3.16, which declares that whosoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I tell you today that if you will believe, the gift of eternal life awaits you. But I also need you to know that true salvation also brings with it transformation. Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? My jacket is messing up my microphone. I know I tell y'all I wear my jacket on Easter Sunday. I'm taking it off. Sorry. So it's moving the wire around for me. Sorry. I feel so much better. (laughs) Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And don't do what I say. What he's saying here is you claim to believe. You call me Lord. You you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But you live like you don't. It's not okay. So you must continue in your faith. Established and firm. And do not move from the hope is held out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, the gift of God is free, but what are you going to do with it? It ought to transform who you are. The scriptures are entirely consistent in saying that we don't earn salvation, but we do have something to do with it. The two can coexist with each other. In fact, I read a recent article this week that I believe connects well with this principle. Do you remember the story of Moses? coming to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage and oppression in Egypt. His arrival comes at the end of a 400-year period of slavery. And the people had cried out for a deliverer. And you would think that they would all be eager to leave when Moses got there. Yet some historians believe that not all the Israelites left when the opportunity came. It is believed that many of them had become so comfortable in their familiar captivity that they were not willing to go when the opportunity came. By the way, the same thing happened in the United States when slavery was abolished. There were some who had become so comfortable with the familiar that they chose to remain with their former slave masters. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? They had the chance to live as free men and women, yet they were good with the familiar. Well, Moses had come to set his people free, but not everyone chose freedom. Likewise, Jesus came to set me and you free, allowing us all to be changed, but not all will choose freedom. Not all will choose to be changed. So I have two challenges for you this morning. On the one hand, if you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you have not yet experienced God's forgiveness, I want you to know that you can experience that today. If you confess, the scriptures teach us very clearly that he will forgive us and cleanse us from our sin.
Jesus has already nailed every one of your sins to the cross. They no longer are held against you. That cross means something. Will you respond to that offer of grace? The second challenge is not for those who do not yet know Jesus, but for those who have already confessed that sin, yet perhaps you've sought forgiveness, yet you remain in your sin. I'm going to tell you, there's a disconnect with that. If you have confessed your sin and you have chosen to live for him, you cannot remain in the same place that you've been. Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? If the Lord would say that to you today, then maybe today is the day that you need to say, Lord, from this point forward, you'll never be able to say that to me again. Because I am going to live for you with everything that I have. Many years ago, I was a part of a youth camp where one of our leaders wrote a song that became the theme song for that camp. It was entitled Nailed Down, and this is what it says. I'm not going to sing it to you. Nailed down to the cross of Jesus, his spirit frees us when we give it all to him. It takes everything to be a servant of the king. Let all we own and all we are be nailed down. My hope is that every one of you could sing that as a prayer. Lord, all of me, everything I have, everything that I am, it is yours. I surrender it to you. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you at this time, Lord, first of all, thank you for the grace that is found in the cross and the hope that followed. Thank you that the cross was not the end of the story, but the resurrection took place three days later. Father, within the death on the cross, we see the opportunity for our old selves also to die. Lord, I pray that the sin that has enslaved us would no longer be a part of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would forgive every sin, that from this moment forward, the sin of our past would simply be that in our past. Lord, I pray for your forgiveness. But I pray that it wouldn't be the end of our story. Lord, I pray that we would experience life like we never have before. Lord, I pray that we would experience the resurrection so that our lives would be changed, that we would not be the same people, but we have been made alive in you. Father, I pray today for those who maybe have not made a decision for you, and right now they would surrender their lives to you. Or they would confess their sins, and they would find forgiveness, and they would even find freedom. Father, I pray today that you would be with those who have been a part of the body of Christ, those who maybe even right now they've wondered, could I ever really be changed? Could I ever be made new? And Lord, I pray right now that you would make them new, that you would change them by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you reached into our lives while we were still sinners. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And I pray that from this moment forward, that would mean something to us. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, 
Maybe today you have prayed and said, God, forgive me of my sins so that I may know the forgiveness that the pastor has talked about. If that's you, I just want to be able to pray for you. I don't want you to stand up. I just want you to raise your hand wherever you are, and I want to be able to pray specifically for you. Thank you. Maybe today you've been in that second category and you've experienced forgiveness, but you've still been walking in the same sin, and today you're saying, God, set me free so that that sin is not what defines me anymore, but rather it is my relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are praying that the Lord would set you free, would you raise your hand? And I'd like to be able to pray for you too. Thank you. Thank you. Multiple hands. Father, I pray right now that you would set us free. Lord, I pray that you would, we've already talked about your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that the rest of the world would look upon us and they would see men and women that are no longer the same people. We've been set free. Lord, I pray that you'd help us every day to walk in that freedom. Just as we choose freedom today, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to choose freedom tomorrow and the next day and the day after that until the day you return. Help us to walk in your freedom. And we'll give you praise for what you do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to say, first of all, thank you so much for choosing to make this the place you worship on Easter Sunday. I will say that almost everything that we do today takes place on a normal Sunday morning. And if you do not have a church home, we invite you to come and be a part of it. I will say we don't do a sunrise service every Sunday. So if you come back next Sunday for sunrise service, I'm going to let you preach because uh, you're going to do it by yourself. And uh, it, it was a blessing. We've done those sunrise services where we've had 30-something degrees. We've had snow flurries. We've had all kinds of miserable conditions. It was 50-something degrees this morning out there. It was wonderful. It was foggy, but it was nice. But it is good to be in the house of the Lord today, and it's good to be with you as we've been able to do it. It is a blessing to have you, but it's also a blessing to say you may go in peace.